the Sunday Sermons Podcast. This morning we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right into the story of Samson. It begins in Judges chapter 13. And again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines, who oppressed them for 40 years. In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant, and they had no children. One of the things I like to remind people as we walk through Bible stories together uh, is, well, two things, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a dual truth. One is they're actual history stories. This is actually how it happened. This is real. And we have documentation for <clears throat> these stories outside excuse me, of the Bible. Many of them are, are mentioned in other places. We know that these are real stories. But sometimes people get tripped up because there's these familiar themes that happen. For example, have you ever heard another Bible story? Oh, goodness, I don't know what's going on with my voice. Give me a second. <clears throat> have you? There it goes. <laughs> have you ever heard another Bible story where something happened for 40 years? Have you another heard a Bible story where people had trouble having a child and then an angel shows up and they have a very special child? Okay, those are, those are little breadcrumbs God is dropping for us. Those are little his fingerprints where he's making sure that his will happens no matter what we mess up. So don't let those trip you up and go, wait a second, somebody's making this up. That's the same story. It's just God's fingerprints. Does that make sense? So here's what happens. An angel, an angel does show up and he talks to this woman. He says, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And his hair must never be cut. For he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. Now the Nazarite vow was a really interesting thing. It had everything to do with making another vow. It was a kind of an outward symbol that you had made a special vow to God. Most of the times the Nazarite vows were made by adults and they, they would choose to do this for a season. It wasn't a lifetime thing. That was very rare. This is extremely rare for someone to be dedicated as a Nazarite at birth. But there are a couple things you need to remember. You've probably heard some of these before if you've heard this story. But it really helps to understand how the story goes if you remember these things. Number one, Nazarites never could cut their hair. And I'm talking about period. No razors, no trimming, no, 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 nothing. No cutting at all. Nothing sharp touched their hair. Okay. The other thing was they couldn't have anything that came off a grapevine. No raisins, no grapes, no grape juice, no wine, nothing, nothing that came from grapes. They couldn't touch anything dead or anything that had touched something dead under any circumstances whatsoever. All of those were symbols that people would notice. They'd go, wait a second. Oh, you're a Nazarite. And, and, and the longer their hair got and the bigger their beards got, the more they'd go, yeah, he's a Nazarite. You know what I'm saying? It was an outward symbol this person has a purpose. This person has made a vow to God. They will get something done. You see that the first time it's described in the scriptures is actually in Numbers chapter 6. And um, it says this. This is a ritual law of the Nazarites. It outlines all the rules. It says, and they must be careful to do whatever they vowed when they set themselves apart as Nazarites. Now, this is very important to God that we keep our vows. Jesus even said this in the New Testament. Dad, last week, talked about this in the story of Jephthah. But I want to make something really, really clear that um, it's another one of those dual truths. They go together. 
Okay? Jesus said, don't make a lot of vows because you have to keep the vows you make to God. He expects you to keep them. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Has anybody heard, heard this before? It's a really important thing. In the story of Jephthah, you see that. But let me tell you something else that I don't want you to miss in the story of Jephthah or Samson today. Things are getting worse and worse and worse with these judges. And they do not know God anymore. They are treating God like he's one of their idols. They're making up their own version of God and serving that. If Jephthah would have actually known God, he, he would have actually intimately known God, known God's character, known God's heart, he would have known, yes, God wants you to keep his vows, the vows you make to him, but if it came down to breaking a dumb, sinful vow or killing your child as an act of worship to God, there's no choice there. And the fact that he went through with that, the fact that she went through with that, is not so much, uh, it's, it's not at all an expression of his nobility. It's an expression, he has no idea who he's dealing with. Does that make sense? Amen. So it's absolutely true that you've got to keep your vows to God. Samson, you're going to see, he should have kept those vows. Things did not go well because he did not. But what's really obvious is Samson doesn't know God. He's not experiencing a life with God here. When her son was born, she named him Samson. The Lord blessed him as he grew up. So he had a chance there. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him when he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtel. So again, he had a chance. He could have. The spirit was already moving him and empowering him. He, had, he, it was, it could have gone really well. But I'm sorry, I've got to derail. This week, somebody, somebody said, hey, sometimes we feel like you're drinking from a fire hose. It's just too much information. But I can't help myself. Some, some things are just important. So I've got to share this with you, okay? First off, <clears throat> the Philistines were a seafaring people. We, we often picture them as just really great big white Romans. And that's not what they looked like at all. They're actually documented in a bunch of different places outside the Bible. They look like that on the right. Look on the left. That's, how I, that's like Bible stories that I grew up with. Look at David. That is the whitest dude <laughs> there's ever been. And he's, he's like running around in his underwear. I know he wasn't wearing... That's just weird. And, 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 and Goli that's not what Goliath looked like. Whatever they looked like, the Philistines wore that kind of a headdress very consistently in all ancient documents and drawings of them. That's from the tomb of Ramses III. That's what, Goliath would have just been a very, very big version of that. And when you see Philistines inter interacting with them, it's a whole bunch of those guys. Okay? Does that make sense? Second thing, Samson did not look like this. Here's what we know for sure. He, 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 was, he had a huge beard. He never cut his hair ever. Look at that guy. He's clean shaven. His hair is about this long and it's nice and cut and trimmed. No way. Nothing like that. And, and I don't think he was that pale-skinned either. Uh, sometimes the pendulum swings the other way. Look at this guy. He didn't look like this either. We're closer. We're closer. That's pretty long hair. There's a little bit of stubble going on. His hair's a little darker. Or his skin's a little darker. I'm down with that. But he probably wasn't a black guy. He, he was an Israelite. Okay? So the closest thing I could find. This was hard. This was a struggle. I wanted to show you. I think it's like this. This is the closest. A lot darker than me, at least, okay? And he's got like a Duck Dynasty beard going on, okay? It's like huge and big and untrimmed. 
and then he's got the most epic man bun you've ever seen because the guy has never cut his hair. It says later in the story he wove it into seven braids to keep track of it, and he somehow got to get it out of his way. Are you with me? So as you picture this story today, instead of picturing a great big, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger with slightly longer hair, I want you to picture something more like this, fighting Philistines like they actually look like. Is that cool? All right, back to the story. Here we go. <clears throat> so the first thing Samson actually does is he goes to the village of Timnah, which is a Philistine village. But he doesn't go there to fight them. He goes there to hang out. And while he's hanging out, he falls in love. So he comes home and he says, hey, I met this girl. She caught my eye. Cool. That's great. She's a Philistine. And his parents are like, couldn't you find a Jewish girl? Come on, what's wrong with you? But it's, uh, you like Fiddler on the Roof too? I love that music. <clears throat> Tradition. But anyway, so, so, <laughs> so he says, I, I want to marry this Philistine, which is one of the rules. It's not necessarily a Nazarite vow, but it's one of the rules that God had for all his people. Not that they couldn't marry outside of their ethnic group. That was totally fine with him. They couldn't marry outside of their religion. They could marry the people that he's about to destroy because of their idolatry. The idolatry in all of these, all of these different nations that they were fighting in those days. It was they worshipped through really perverted sexual things and killing their children on altars. God was not okay with any of those things. He was absolutely against it. He said, you cannot... You cannot team up with these people. In the New Testament, it says, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. Don't team up your, your, your closest alliances with people who believe completely differently than you. Things will not go well. Don't. And that brings us to the first big point that you can see so clearly in the story of Samson. And if you would, again, say this out loud, I want this to stick. We must not do what God forbids. Let's say that one more time. We must not do what God forbids. See, every time you sin, the Bible calls this a sin of commission. Well, I'm not sure the Bible, it's, it's a Christian word that we use. Commission means you actually commit it. You actually do this. Whenever we sin, we destroy a little bit of our ability to, to experience God's perfect will for us. And a lot of times we actually take all kinds of verses from the Bible, like Romans 8, 28. And it says, well, God works all things for good for those who love him. God can make something good come out of my mistakes. Sure he can. But imagine what he could do if you didn't make the mistake. Imagine what he could do if you would have done it right the first time. Imagine what he could do if you wouldn't have gone that route. And that's what we miss. That's what we trade for whatever pleasure we get out of sin every time. Can God forgive you? Yes. Does he still love you? Yes. Is there grace? Is there hope? Can he still make his will happen? Yes. But you're missing what could have been. We must not do what God tells us not to do. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. I love at the beginning of that same chapter, it says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. In other words, God's not going to write you off. And because you belong to him, listen to this. This is the best part of this verse. 
The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. You don't have to sin anymore. If you belong to Jesus, you have the ability, whether it feels like it or not, looks like it or not, you don't have to rely on God's grace and mercy as hard as you do, as hard as I do. We can stay pure. It's a possibility for us because of Jesus. Back to the story. Judges 14.4. His father and mother didn't realize that the Lord was at work in this. Again, this wasn't God's perfect plan, but he wasn't going to let his plans just fall through. The Lord was at work in this, creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, and they're going down to make the arrangements uh, for this uh, engagement. As Samson and his parents were going down to Timnah, a young lion suddenly attacked Samson near the vineyards of Timnah. At that moment, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. He did it as easily as if it were a young goat. Can we just pause for a moment? Was this a thing? Has anybody ever tried to rip apart a young goat? I mean, that's just weird. It's right here in the text. It's like we should know how hard that would be. or how it, I don't understand that. Here's what we know. There's no way any of us could fight a lion like that. This is a supernatural thing that's going on. He just grabs this lion, grabs its jaws, rips it apart. That's craziness. That's a supernatural kind of strength. So they head on, they make arrangements, they go back, they head back again sometime later. The arrangements for weddings back then took a really long time. So it's been a while. Bees don't just build their nests in carcasses that are rotting away on a road. That doesn't happen. So the, the fact that they built their nest in it, that carcass had been there for a while. But still, it was recognizable from the bones or something that this beehive that they find on their way back was built in a carcass. And I, I'm just telling you right now, Nazarite vow or not, that's not where I'd be looking for something to eat. You know what I'm saying? But he scoops some out and he gives some to his parents and they all head there and then he makes up this riddle. So he goes there, they're having this big wedding, they're feasting, they're eating, they're drinking with their enemies. Is anybody keeping track how many of his rules he's broke so far? They're, 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 they're falling away pretty quickly. Okay, so uh, they, they go through. He makes this bet um, with 30 of them. He says, uh, if you can figure out my riddle, then I will let you um, I'll get you 30 outfits, one for each of you. But if you can't figure out my riddle, you have to buy me 30 outfits. Every single one of you has to give me an outfit. So they go, fine, we'll take the bet. But they can't figure out the riddle because it has to do with a lion with beehive in it. Nobody's ever heard of that before. And so they go to his wife. And those of you who are into literary things and stuff, this is what's called foreshadowing. He should have picked up on this little pattern and his vulnerability to it, but he did not. Samson's wife came to him in tears and said, you don't love me. You don't hate me. You've given my people a riddle and you haven't told me the answer. And he breaks and he tells her what it is. She runs right to them and they tell him what the riddle is. 
So the cool thing is, uh, he, this is the first time now that he actually does anything to actually fight Philistines. All of these things, everything up to this point, however cool or sad or whatever you think about it, is kind of a waste of time as far as God's purposes of fighting the Philistines go. Finally here, something happens. He goes and he kills 30 Philistines. And he strips them and takes all their stuff and gives that to the 30 guys. <laughs> This is a crazy story. It is. You can laugh. You can react however you want to. It's, it's nuts. Then they get mad about some other stuff. He goes home for a while. He goes back. He spends some time with... Uh, he goes back to his wife and they've given her away to somebody else. So he gets mad about that. Here's the really bizarre thing. He grabs 300 foxes. I don't know how long it takes to catch 300 foxes, but he catches them, ties them together in pairs. So there's 150 pairs. Ties a torch to each one of those pairs, lights it, and lets them all go. So you've got 150 pairs of terrified foxes with fire burning behind them, running everywhere. And the scripture tells us that it destroyed all of the grain, all the vineyards, and the olive groves of the Philistines. It's craziness. So they get mad and they burn his ex-wife and all of her family to death. So then he goes and he lives in a cave all by himself. Now, we'll pause for just a second. Is, is, does this sound like God's perfect will for this guy? Does this sound like godliness to you guys? Does this sound like this is, this is how God had thought this would all go down or what, at least wanted it to go down, even if he knew it was going to go down? Is this why he gave Samson all this power and why he called him and gave, set him apart before birth? I don't think so. This is just craziness. This is just a guy just doing whatever he feels like every day of his life. It's crazy. Well, the Philistines are after him. They come. They actually convince 3,000 of the people of Judah to come to him. And, the, and so Samson comes up with a plan. He says, I'll tell you what. You can tie me up with brand new ropes. Don't think I can break those so they tie him up with brand new ropes here comes the philistines he snaps the ropes like they're nothing i think you've heard this story somewhere before he picks up a fresh jawbone of a donkey not sure where the donkey came from not sure what was going on there but he picks up the fresh jawbone of a donkey it says that in the bible and he kills a thousand philistines in one big battle then he prays to God, much like uh, Rahab, and, or not Rahab, I'm sorry, Hagar, and several other people had done other stories. There's a lot of these tropes that God's saying, hey, I'm, I, I'm in this, I am in this, I'm doing my best. This guy's just crazy. <laughs> so he prays to God and he says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die of thirst. Can you save me from my thirst? And God makes a spring boil up, and that's the spring of Lehi that was at least still there when this was written down. I think it might still be there in real life. I wasn't able to track that down. Real life as in real life today. This was real life then. So Judges 15 to 20 sums it up like this. Samson judged Israel for 20 years during the period when the Philistines dominated the land. In other words, all of these stories happen over the course of about 20 years and he never really made a big difference at Somewhere in the middle of those 20 years, possibly toward the end, he goes to a Philistine city again, Gaza. Again, not to do what he should be doing. He goes and he visits a prostitute. Spends some time with her. 
And then he tries to escape because, again, there's this pattern going on where he spends time with a woman and then all the Philistines come after him. Hope you're seeing that pattern in there too. They come after him and he gets away by literally just tearing the gates off of their city. And I don't know if you've ever seen old movies where it shows like a big castle or whatever else and that how big those kind of gates are. This is another just ridiculous supernatural thing that's going on. This is re- that no, no human being could do anything like this without some help from God's spirit empowering them somehow. And I gotta say, when I was a kid, Samson was my favorite character in the Bible. Jesus was a close second, but Jesus never carried off gates of cities and stuff. You know what I'm saying? He never ripped apart lions with his bare hands. Samson was cool, I thought. But this guy missed it on every single level. His empowerment was cool. What he could have done was cool. What God still was able to make happen through him anyway was cool. But Samson was not cool. He's not my hero anymore. Sometime later, Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek. So we always assume she's a Philistine, but it doesn't say that. Sorek is a valley on the border between the land of the Philistines and the Israelites. She could have been either one. It actually implies that she's one of the Israelites. Just throwing that out there. Doesn't say one way or another, but it's implied. A lot of scholars believe that, and it makes a lot of sense to me that she was actually, he finally learned at least that lesson and actually went after a Israelite woman this time. Did not marry her, still is not doing everything right, but maybe he got that right. That's at least a possibility. I want to give the guy as much of a benefit of a doubt as I possibly can. Don't know that for sure. Falls in love with her. She lives in the Valley of Sorek. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely. And then each of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. How many have heard this story before? That's what I thought. It's a pretty well-known story. So you know where this is going. Watchman Nee says this. An affection which is not inspired by the Lord will soon be transformed into lust. Samson is not alone in the history of man and failing in this regard. It's amazing what we will do, male and female, married, unmarried. It's amazing what we will do to save a relationship with someone who actually doesn't really love us at all, at least not as much as God does. It's amazing what we will do to save a a, a godly marriage, and that's a good thing. If, if there's hope of restoring a broken but could be healed godly marriage, that's a wonderful thing that amazes me. Uh, just I have so much respect for people that will fight for a marriage and make it still work. But what, what really disturbs me is how many people will fight that hard or harder to keep a sinful relationship going, something that's tearing them further and further apart from God every day. But they'll fight for that one. That's exactly what Samson is doing here. And he should have known just how broken it was. He should have seen that if her love for him could be bought, she could be paid off to betray him. This wasn't real love, but he doesn't see it. Instead, he just goes through his little riddle thing again. Oh, tie me up with seven new bowstrings. Tie me up with brand new ropes. Same thing you tried earlier. Tie me up with, uh, oh, braid my hair into a loom. Doesn't work. 
And every time she brings the Philistines to attack him, every time she does exactly what he says would make him vulnerable, tries it, and every time he busts out. But he doesn't see that pattern. He doesn't see what's happening. He's blind to that. And of course, the last time he literally becomes blind. Because the last time he finally breaks and he tells her the one rule he hasn't broken. Out of all the Israelite rules and all the Nazarite rules, the only thing he'd kept is he still had the Duck Dynasty beard and the man braid. You know what I'm saying? That's it. He goes, you know what? If you cut my hair, that'd be the secret of my strength. Which again is proof that he doesn't know God and he doesn't know how this works. It's not about his hair. It's about the Holy Spirit empowering him. The hair is a symbol. But it's also him finally telling her that, him finally breaking that last thing is a symbol that he doesn't get it, that he doesn't care, that he's willing to trade anything for her. And so he does lose his strength when he gets his hair cut. And he gets his eyes gouged out. And he becomes a slave. Nancy Lee DeMoss says, Samson was reduced to a pathetic shred of a man because he never got control over the lust of his flesh. That's, that's what can happen to all of us if we're not careful. That's what happens when we put any king, any idol, on the same level or higher than Jesus Christ. That's, that's just where that road leads. Judges 16.20, but before long his hair began to grow back. This leads us to some good news, and we've we got about five more minutes here. We're going to start wrapping up. I hope you can grab this great news that is in this story, and I hope that we can embrace that and we can do that together. First thing, say this with me if you would. We must do what God commands. One more time. We must do what God commands. Even more common than sins of commission, in other words, doing what God forbids, are the sins of omission, which means we don't get around to doing the things that God told us we should do. Both of them tear us apart from God. Both of us take us away from his will. Both of them need us to come back to that verse of Romans 8, 28, not to justify our sin, but to remember that God works for good for those who love him with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. He works for the good of those who are called according to his purposes, that those of us who are actually trying our best to live our life for him. When we mess up, he is big enough to make that still work, but he's not there just to clean up all our messes. That is not his dream. That is not his promise. We must do what God commands. So far, if there were a scoreboard, Samson in his whole life has killed 30 men, destroyed some of their food and wealth, killed a few more men, an unnamed number, and then a thousand men, and then he destroyed a gate, and I guess he kind of took away a sense of security. That's it. All that power, all that time, his whole lifetime, that's what he's done. And where we're, where we're about to wrap this up, he's lost his eyes, and he's lost his relationship, he's lost his freedom, he's lost everything, and here he is. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, Remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Still sounds pretty selfish here. Not so much noble. 
Then Samson puts his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. Pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. Again, does this sound like God's perfect will for this guy? Suicide? Kamikaze style fighting? No. But it's the best that God and Samson can do under the circumstances. It's the best God can do where Samson took everything he'd been given. The best God could do at the end of this road that Samson had gone down. The temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people. And so he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire lifetime. 3,000 idolaters taken out at once. Their temple, the temple toward their idol taken out all at once. Imagine what he could have done if he would have spent his life doing what God had asked him to do. It's not enough for us not to, to it's not enough for us just to not do the things God forbids. We've got to do the things that God commands us to do. And, and, and let's, here's where we're going to wrap this up today. We must embrace our destiny. Would you say that out loud with me? We must embrace our destiny. And what I mean by that is, is several things. There's probably some very specific things as part of your destiny that only you and God know. There's some things that you are uh, going to be held accountable someday at the judgment day uh, that I'm not and vice versa. But here's what I know. We are the children of God. Our destiny is we have been invited into God's family and into his team that is building his kingdom on this earth. That is our destiny. That is who we are. That is what we are called to do. That is what we were created for. And no alternative dreams or relationships or kings or idols can compete with that. Because we were not created for those. Whether they are good and noble or whether they are terrible and sinful, whether they are positive or negative in everybody else's opinion, nothing else can compete with what we were designed for. We've got to embrace our destiny. We were made in the image of God. We can be remade, no matter how broken we have become, remade in the image of God by the blood of Jesus, by surrendering to him, by coming to him, giving him our whole lives, going through baptism, spending the rest of our lives worshiping him and serving him and doing the things that he had designed us to do. Aldous Huxley is not really a prophet or even a theologian, but I love what he says here. Moloch, sometimes written Molech, was the main idol that supposedly demanded human sacrifice back in these days. Uh, there were several others, but this was the one that they would kill their children and burn them or burn them alive to, as worship for this idol. Aldous Huxley says every idol however exalted, turns out in the long run to be a Moloch, hungry for human sacrifice. Any other destiny you embrace and say, that's my destiny. That's the one I want to identify with. That's the one I want to be. That's the one I want to claim for me. That's the one I want to everybody to know me by. In the end, is going to demand your life. But when we embrace, embrace God's destiny for us, we get to see what life is all about. And here it is in a nutshell, Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's masterpiece. 
He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us to do long ago. This morning, I'm not sure where each of you are coming from. I know that all of us have sinned. All of us have hurt God and those around us many times because we're human beings. Maybe you feel like that defines you today. Maybe you feel like where you're coming from, you're kind of like Samson. Your whole life has been about that. I hope from this story that you take some hope that God can still make good come out of even a completely broken situation. I want you to know that God can take you from wherever you are right now and completely change your present and your future. And that is the destiny you're being called to this morning. I invite you to remember that and to stop doing the things that God forbids and to start doing the things that he commands, beginning by giving your life to him today. Maybe there's some other way that you need to embrace your destiny today. Maybe you'd like to officially join this congregation. Maybe you'd like to come forward and just pray, have someone pray with you. Maybe you'd like to tell, tell a testament. I, I don't know. I don't know what else God might be wanting you to, to do this morning. But I, I invite you, God invites you to embrace your destiny today. Imagine what could have happened if Samson would have given all of that power, all those opportunities to God and tried his whole life to accomplish God's purposes. Imagine what God can do with you guys and with me and with this church and with all God's people around the world if we all embrace that. That's the dream that I'm asking you to accept this morning as we stand and sing.